This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, online store, whatever you want to create on the internet. Squarespace will help you. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code NATE at checkout to get 10% off. Huh. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hopefully you've listened to nine episodes of Reading Aloud before today, and now here you are listening to the 10th episode. We made it through 10. Sam, you believe we made it? Woo! I was surprised that we made it to 10. Like, how many did you give me? You were like, you'll make it to four. Oh, no. I thought you'd burn out at three. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't think you knew any of the people... That you said you did. Who did I say that I knew? I, well, anyone anyone I saw in the calendar that we were scheduled to record, I just assumed was I was fraudulent. making that up? Yeah. Like Henry Winkler. There's no way he <laughs> yeah, knows like fucking no Fonzie. Yeah, that makes he sense. He loves a fire alarm. That was a great, that was a wonderful, wonderful interview and episode. Mm-hmm. Isn't he charming? He's perfect. Uh, <laughs> he is perfect. Uh, the perfect height and weight, everything. My name's Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Loud, and yes, indeed, we've made it to 10 episodes, which is really cool. I want to make it to 100, and then I'm going to, um, I'm going to, oh, I was going to say something really stupid and offensive, so I'm not going to do that, because I'm smarter now. I'm on episode 10. I've matured as a podcaster, so I'm going to be smarter about this. Let's Let's get to the meat, shall we? The corrections. If you haven't picked it up, Immediately go to your bookstore, because it's 550 pages. Get to your bookstore and get it and read it and join the book club. I haven't been this excited about a book club uh, for the entire season of Reading Aloud than I am for next week when we read, when we talk about reading the corrections. Um, It's such a great book, and uh, it's really fun to um, have conversations about books with smart people. And I have great, uh, a great panel coming in. Again, Maria Fair, uh, Julian Smolinski, Mike Postolakis, they'll be here next week talking about the corrections. So join us, read the book, and then send us your thoughts at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com so we can include you in this experience. Um, and moving on to a live show, March 8th, Sunday, March 8th at the UCB Theater on Franklin in Hollywood. We're doing another live show uh, with all new content and a bunch of new readers who I'm really excited about. It's going to be super fun. Sunday night at 7.30 and it's $5. So you can go to the UCB website, the UCB Franklin website, which is in Hollywood, and come down to see the show. It's five bucks and it's early and it's, uh, it's about a 45, 50 minute show. So it's, it's uh, nice and tight. So you're out of there pretty quickly. I try to respect my audience because um, no one wants to sit in the dark for two hours. I mean, unless something really compelling is happening in front of you. I just have <laughs> low attention span. Uh, the first piece today, moving on to this week's content, is read by Steve Agee, uh, who's a really funny actor and comedian. You've seen him on a bunch of TV shows. He's a really funny stand-up. This was his first time reading 
um, a piece for reading aloud, and the piece just fit him perfectly. He just fucking dominated. And the piece is written by Dan Kennedy. Uh, he's the host of the uh, the Moth podcast. Um, he's written a bunch of books: Loser Goes First, Rock On, American Spirit, uh, and he's written a ton of pieces for uh, the Internet Tendency McSweeney's website. Um, like 50 pieces or something. And he wrote this piece. I, I, I emailed him um, asking for his permission, and he wrote back really quickly, and, and he said yes. So thank you, Dan. I appreciate you uh, allowing us to read this on the show. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's <laughs> well, I, wanna, I don't want to give it away because Steve says the title, but um, in his email, Dan said that he's actually been, um, He's been actually been doing this in his life recently, so it's uh, kind of hilarious that he wrote this piece three or four years ago, but now he's actually doing um, what he was doing in this piece, fictionally, of course. Uh, so this is Steve Agee reading Dan Kennedy's piece at the UCB Theater live, um, and it's real, it's real, real funny. Goodbye. Please welcome Steve Agee. I just found out ABC Family is going to pass on my pitch by Dan Kennedy. It's called Crashed Cars, and it's about a family of vagrant addicts who live in a junkyard. They shoplift food and drugs. They commit arson to achieve arousal sexually. The only way the male lead can... I don't know how to say this delicately in our meeting here. Uh, make love is if someone holds a loaded gun to his head and keeps telling him they're gonna kill him any second. This isn't an abusive thing. Um, this is what he asks lovers to do for him or asks someone watching him and a lover to do for him. Actually, I'm sorry, I should, uh, I should back up a minute and clarify that they're not obviously a biological family. <laughs> They're a family in the road-worn, petty thief sense of the word. So basically a tight-knit covey of small-time degenerates. That's, that's all I mean by family. Okay? Um, like the way Charles Manson and those people were a family. <laughs> Jesus, I've said the word family five times or something. It sounds like I'm really tailoring my pitch to you. <laughs> It's just that when I started talking about them lighting stuff on fire and holding a loaded gun to each other's heads in order to become aroused, it occurred to me that I, I should clarify what I meant by family. Okay, so moving on. They sleep in a junkyard, like I was saying. Uh, they sleep in the cars waiting to be smashed and stacked. So if they were to oversleep, they would be smashed alive on the... the backseat of whatever junkyard car they dozed off in dreaming of a better life. Those are your stakes at the beginning of the pilot episode. And those stakes continue through the whole series. We establish this as a daily stakes in the life they're living. So real simple, if one shoplifting sexual deviant sleeps on the blood-encrusted backseat of a crashed Monte Carlo that's waiting to get flattened and stacked into the scrap heap, that's where they're crushed to death. So even though they're a filthy family of miscreant junkies with sex problems, they wake up early and on time, every day. 
period. Very punctual people. And you wouldn't think it to, to look at them. Then the unthinkable happens to the female lead in the very first episode. She oversleeps and is smashed alive. Yep, third act of the pilot. After we've written every trick in the book to get viewers to fall in love with her, and after we've clearly invested the whole episode in setting her up as the series protagonist. She's crushed like a filthy bug in the back of a shitty old limo, sleeping on a rum-stained velour backseat that smells like two decades of middle management cologne and menthol cigarettes. Killed. Dead. Just flattened. So the viewer assumes that the male lead must in fact be our protagonist. That's gonna lead us through the series. Well, we cut to our male lead in a broken down studio apartment having sex with another junkie while a third party, a girl, holds a loaded gun to his head as he makes love. She repeatedly screams that she's gonna kill him and then suddenly, BLAM! Holy Christ above, the gun was loaded, he's dead. She's shocked, she's covered in blood. How the hell did this go wrong? This was just a sexy game. Why the hell was the gun loaded? She's high, of course, and racked with guilt. And she turns the gun on herself. Blam! She's dead! All of this makes the junkie on the bed, the woman our male lead was having intimate relations and intercourse with, and now the only person in the threesome left alive, unexpectedly have an orgasm. Fade to black. End of story. Then we dissolve up on a new scene, a button on the end of the third act of our pilot. We're outside a strip mall, massage parlor next to an next to an interstate where both our female lead, our male lead, and the girl we saw turn the gun on herself are talking with the rest of the secondary characters about shaking the massage parlor down. They're jabbering on like a gaggle of filthy gypsies, yammering about work working some short con on the Johns inside the place. They're smoking, making plans to, to, to grift some cash, talking about getting back to the junkyard and to their sleeping cars before the pit bulls are let out to prowl the yard. And saying, and you're saying, wait, what? What? I, I thought those three characters were dead. Okay, get ready for a kick to the head here. These characters die in every single episode of every season. Yep, this is the afterlife, folks. This is purgatory. And if you think life is a bitch, just wait till you get to the afterlife. That, that might be your tagline for the poster, by the way. It just kind of came to me just now, that, but that is, in fact, the central message of my show. Anyway, yeah, they're road ghosts. <laughs> wait, you know what? New title, Road Ghosts. Or it could even be ABC Family Presents Road Ghost. So yeah, they're all dead and have been from the second we meet them. Back in their early days, two of them were young lovers who overdosed in a motel in Michigan. One of them was an upper middle class accidental suburban suicide mixing dry saunas with masturbation, wine, and Valium. And one of them had a heart attack in a fast food place, leaving behind a mortal trail of beneficiary relatives who are all winners now in our litigious nation's lottery of lawsuits against the cash-rich rich corporations that are, that are killing us all for profit. That's why he does so much heroin in the afterlife, because he can see how wealthy he accidentally made his middle-class relatives by dying. Long pause. 
Silence, and then some mumbo jumbo about family comedies and calling me if they're interested in seeing a pilot script. Thank you. My guest today is John Moe, who is the host of the funniest show on National Public Radio by far. It's not close. It's called Wits, and it's a live variety show hosted by John from the Fitzgerald Theater in Minnesota. There are a bunch of shows upcoming with some amazing guests like... uh, Nico Case, uh, George Takei, and, uh, and friend of the show, Paul Shear. Before hosting Wits, John was the host of Week in America, as well as the host of Marketplace Tech, both on NPR. He's appeared on Day to Day, Week in Edition, It's Only a Game, um, as well as having several commentaries on All Things Considered. He's an author, a writer, that's why he's here. His most recent book is called Dear Luke, we Need to Talk, Love, Darth, and Other Pop Culture Correspondences. I love this book, John. Will you explain to my listeners the premise of the book? Well, sure. It's, uh, it's correspondences, like it says. So emails, letters, memoranda uh, between characters that have been created in pop culture. So, uh in, implied through songs or movies or TV shows or, or any kind of a pop culture institution, kind of the, the story of that thing as told by an outside perspective. So, for instance, James Taylor issuing an update <laughs> on his promise to come running whenever you call out his name yeah. or uh, the Highway Patrol issuing some specifics about why Bon Jovi is wanted dead or alive. Uh, did this come from, because I, I would read these on McSweeney's, is that, right. uh, is that sort of where this idea for the book came from? Sort of, yeah. The, uh, it started, I mean, it started when I was like 15, when I would just hear these things and, uh, and kind of start imagining the, the other point of view within them, almost as just a, a sort of creative writing exercise before I even became a writer. Like, uh, the one that always struck me was was madness, our house in the middle of our street. So I start to think, well, okay, what about a house that is in the middle of a street with traffic zooming all around it at all times? What <laughs> must life be like inside that house? So for years, I just let these things rattle around in my brain. And then um, I started I started writing them down in, in more letter form and uh, – they were and putting them up on McSweeney's. And after a while, my editor there, John Warner said, you know, these are all letters that you're sending me. Are, is this a column? <laughs> are you, because you lately, you just are writing the same format over and over and over. So, um, so yeah, I started doing it there just with songs. And then um, when we, years later, when I started doing wits, um, we were having a show coming up with John Hodgman on it. And, I thought it'd be kind of fun to take uh, the Pink Floyd song, Another Brick in the Wall, part two, and uh, from the point of view of, of the teachers, because I'm now, you know, I'm, once I've gotten older, I, I tend to empathize with all authority figures in like <laughs> movies or, or, or TV or, or music. That's so, so funny. So I always think like those poor teachers, like, you know, yeah, you do need an education. <laughs> the fact that you say, we don't need no education, the grammar alone proves that you need an education. <laughs> and, and all teachers that I know 
dark sarcasm in the classroom is like the only thing that gets them through the day. <laughs> right. So just give them that. So we, uh, we worked it up with our band and, and had the band do part of the song. And then I would do, I would read the part that it kind of referred to and it became a big hit on the show. And then, uh, and then I came up with the idea to add in the movies and the TV and the sports and everything else to, to, uh, yeah. to make it into a, a broader book. You said the idea came to you when you were 15. When was the first yeah. time that you put pen to paper or fingers to keypad? Uh, I, I think it was the James Taylor one. It was uh, it, it, like, uh, I just remember hearing you've got a friend and hearing him say, you just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running. Because, like, that's just bad friendship. <laughs> like, even... <laughs> Even with your dearest friend, you don't want to make that promise because <laughs> then they're just going to be dependent, and you know it's 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 a mess. I was raised by Scandinavians, so maybe I'm a little more austere when it comes to emotional availability. Sure, but uh, but yeah. So I I thought, well, who would who would this guy be if he could come running whenever you call him? <laughs> and you know maybe he's just a an insecure guy who's got nothing else to do. But it's James Taylor, so obviously he's very busy. And so I thought, well, what if he is a superhero whose superpower is friendship? And uh, he, you know, he's made this promise, but he didn't think anybody would actually read into it. And then everybody all over the, the world is calling out his name, necessitating him missing out on crucial uh, tours and recording <laughs> projects with Christopher Cross or Art Garfunkel. Well, one of my, <laughs> I've read the book and I love it. And there's a couple that jump out at me that I love. I really love the letters between Bill Cosby's sweaters <laughs> in the 19, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I, uh, like, who'd have thought something sinister about Bill Cosby? <laughs> I mean, you were the first one. <laughs> I was. I was. Like, truly. proto-Hannibal Burris. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, I, that one was kind of a, a latecomer in the, in the game, but I, was, uh, I needed some more balance on the TV side. Uh, my, my editor wanted more TV stuff. Right. And he said, well, how about, um, how about Sex in the City? And I said, I have never, ever watched it. So no, but uh, I started looking through like what are the all-time classic comedies, and Cosby Show came up, and uh, and what's iconic about Cosby Show? It's his, it's those weird sweaters that he wore. So, uh, so yeah, that piece is about um, a bunch of sentient sweaters somehow sending messages among themselves. Where they, <laughs> they, wow, I'm just realizing now like how. You know what? It, what it all means? They, yeah. They somehow slip a Mickey to Bill Cosby, and uh, and he believes himself to be this character, uh, Cliff Huxtable. And then uh, the, the idea is that the sweaters could multiply and multiply and infect everybody and and take over the world. Things get kind of stalled because they're sweaters and <laughs> they can only do so much aside from being put in a box and kept in the closet. I I feel like you need to put that one specifically back sort of whether via Twitter or Facebook or wherever, like get that one back into <laughs> yeah. the world um, because well, it is so that's, that's present. One that, after I did that one too, like the, the people I was showing it to 
like nobody knew what to make of that one. Like there's some that are very friendly that everybody seems to like. You know, there, there's one about Curious George that's very popular, and yeah, it's one about Guns and Roses people like. But everybody was a little a little weirded out by the Cosby one. I think I, yeah, I was I was drawn to that one because of its bizarreness <laughs> and the idea <laughs> that the sweaters, the lack of punchline. No, it was set of characters. <laughs> I really love that you took something that can't be evil and you made it. And you made it evil. Like, what is the most banal, like, maybe a candle or, right. like, a doorknob? And, but you took a Cosby sweater, which has so much personality, and yet it is still just a fucking sweater. And you yeah. made it, like, the height of evil, which I just found <laughs> just absolutely well, hilarious. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, I always like a villain that explains their motivations and, and especially a villain that that has to struggle a little bit. Like any any character, you know, in in anything, you you want to see the struggle. You want to see the the things that get in their way that are often sometimes banal things that we can all relate to getting in our way. So it might be a sentient evil sweater, but it just it has to put up with certain fashion trends and the, <laughs> the whims of Felicia Rashad. Right, and maybe sometimes like. Hoagie is spilled on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Cliff <laughs> yeah, loves... It's not an inherently dignified uh, species to be. No. I forget uh, if they... Because they're all... I'm not sure if they're hung in a closet or if they're like rolled up in a bureau. I wonder if they spoke to each other like as in, like, yeah. in the dark in the bureau. Like I wonder if that was part <laughs> of it as well. You know, you know I, was, uh, I was reading this, this book... Uh, this new book of uh, Wes Anderson interviews and movies and table book of Wes Anderson movies. And the, uh, the writer, the interviewer asks him about how in Moonrise Kingdom, um, the, the scouts in Moonrise Kingdom just seem to be out in the woods for months at a time with weapons. And like, <laughs> it's, it doesn't really fit in any kind of school year calendar or anything else. And, and Wes Anderson was saying, yeah, that's, you know, that's just the way it is. That's just the way yeah. these things work. And right. I've always, I've always tried to kind of have a, that resonated with me. Cause I always think, well, if you can't quite completely explain why something is a certain way in your story, you don't necessarily have to. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of adventure time and, and they don't, they don't waste time giving exposition or explanation as to why everything's happening. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a, a thing that you want to have happen. I think also just with good like sweaters sp- being able to talk. Yeah. And with, and it's also like, I, it's a movie. It's a story. You get yeah. to do whatever you want. Yeah. There are no, I mean, there are rules, but you don't get to follow the rules that you don't want to follow. You get to create any story you want. You have that, you have that freedom. Right. Right. You have that responsibility. Yeah, yeah. What 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 is your yeah. um, like writing behavior? Do you, do you st- do you lock yourself in a room and or do you have a place that you go to that is quiet or do you like like what are your habits? Yeah. Uh, I don't. Re- I mean, I have I have three kids, so I don't really have a lot of time or quietness in my life. Yeah. Um, but I uh, so I I've kind of trained myself to be pretty flexible about just being able to write wherever and however I can. Uh, when I was working on this book, I would, I would generally, um, adjourn myself to the coffee shop, like evenings and and weekend mornings and just, you know, like come home, have dinner with the kids and my wife and just say, okay, 
good night, everybody, and then go off and, and write for a while. And then, you know, on a Sunday morning, maybe go do the same thing from from eight in the morning till till noon, you know, either at the library or at the coffee shop or mm. or wherever it may be. Um, the one thing I try to I try to keep consistent when I'm working on a big project like a book is having the same music uh, playing in my headphones the entire oh, wow. time. Wow. Um, where I find I find some music that I really like. And then uh, just don't deviate from that. And so it makes like a Pavlovian reaction. Like when I hear that music, it's time to get to work. What was it for, uh, for the, um, the most recent book? What, what were you listening to? Uh, I was listening to Metric. And I was listening to uh, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, uh, their live album uh, from a couple of years ago. And... Uh, We've had Jason on our on our show, and he's a he's a friend, and uh, and he's put this album out recently, Southeastern, that was got big critical acclaim. But this was the one before that, and uh, so now, like, we've had him on the show since I've since I did the majority of the work on the book, and when he would start playing one of those songs, my fingers <laughs> would just sort of subconsciously start typing. Is he <laughs> is he aware that you used his his work as motivation for your own work? Yeah, I I told him about it. You you kind of don't want to tell people about it too much because right. you come off as a weirdo. Right. Um, like uh like I in my first book I I uh thanked the postal service and uh I have friends who work at Sub Pop Records in Seattle and saying, Wait, what what's going on with you and the postal service? I'm like, I just listened to their album a thousand billion times. And right. That's that's what did it. Was that for the the Conservatize Me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, this is, I think this was written in 2007, am I right? 2000? Uh, 2006 it came out. Okay, this is a book. Was this your first book? Yeah. This yeah. is called Conservatize Me, How I Tried to Become a Righty with the Help of Richard Nixon, Sean Hannity, Toby Keith, and Beef Jerky. Uh, this is a book yeah, I, yeah. I, will, I will be honest, I have not read, and I... Just got it today on Amazon, so it's coming. Join the club, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> what, where did this idea uh, come from, and were you, were you honest? Were you like, yeah. did you really yeah, say, well, I'm going to commit to this? Uh, yeah, so, so this one came about, um, I was doing you know, a bunch of, bunch of radio work and doing some commentary, and, and the McSweeney stuff was getting noticed, and, and so uh, an agent approached me about what I wanted to write about. And, and I was thinking a lot about politics. And I was thinking about um, how I lived in Seattle and uh, like all my friends were, were liberal. I was in the arts. I was an actor for quite a while and, and I was a writer. And so I, I tended to kind of have one point of view all around me at yeah. all times. And then my sister's, uh, my, my wife's sister's husband um, is, is a, conservative and uh, what was formerly uh, Ralph Reed's number two guy at the Christian Coalition. And he's worked for, uh, and his family's worked for Dick Cheney. Like he's a Washington, D.C., true conservative. And we get along great. Like we're family. And, and uh, there are things that we, that we disagree on that we can talk about. There's things that we just don't bother talking about. But mostly we just you know, hang out and, and have a good time. And, and it, it, it occurred to me that there's just nobody, there, there's very little 
of just uh, kind of freely, openly listening to what the other side has to say. It's become so entrenched. And I mean, that was, I wrote it in 2005. It came out in 2006. And if anything, it's just become uh, so much more so since then. But I was trying, I was trying to at least kind of find, if not common ground that people could agree on, at least a, a recognition that we're all people and, and not dogma. And uh, so, you know, I, it was, it was fun writing the book. I think people, if they're buying a political book, are more interested in dogma most of the time. But, you know, it was, it was a fun experiment. It must have been really hard. I'm assuming you got used to it after a while, but, like, really committing to being in that world, because I'm, I'm super on the left as well. I'm a, you know, die in the wool Massachusetts liberal Democrat who, who yeah. works in the arts, and I'm, so I have a similar sort of right. trajectory. But I wonder, like, how long did it take for you or maybe you never felt comfortable. I'm assuming the first time you sort of stepped into those scenarios and had conversations with people you would never have conversations with, were you like, I'm going to be as open and, and, and sort of, uh, I don't know, I'm going to try to be as aware, as aware as possible to this other human? Or at first, was it like, oh, God, this is, I'm going to, I want to choke this person? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I tried different things. I met with like uh, uh, William Crystal from, uh, you know, yeah. some of these leading conservative commentators and, and, uh, kind of tried to get them to, to explain what it meant and, and, uh, meant to them. And, um, you know, I, I found that, that the people who kind of had the like conservative notions about government or about, you know, where they thought society was going when it was just a belief for a person first with a belief, it was fine. It's when they were subscribing to one side or the other that I find people just incredibly dull, whether they're on the right or the left. Yeah. Um, it was a little tricky. I, <laughs> going to things like a, a Toby Keith concert um, was a lot of cognitive dissonance happening in my mind because <laughs> it was <laughs> in, a, in a rainstorm in Indiana. And I was just standing there by myself listening to Toby Keith thinking, I, I hope this book turns out well. <laughs> was there a, a moment during that concert that you were like, tapped your foot or like appreciated what was happening? Or was it just real, real wet and sad? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I, I've been listening. We have a show coming up in, in Nashville. So I've been listening to kind of trying to catch myself up on, on country music. And the the thing that, that I always admire about country music uh, is that for the most part, uh, the song is about what it says it's about. Yes. There, there isn't, you, you don't have to feel, it's not like Coldplay singing about the scientist or someone being yellow. Uh, it's, it's, there's Dirk no Bentley hidden. has a song called Drunk on a Plane and it's about being drunk on a plane. <laughs> and, I, and I think as, as, a, as a writer, you can kind of appreciate the, the 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 lack of guile uh, about that kind of writing. That was very polite of you to say, lack of guile, because uh, there are other <laughs> ways to describe that. But yeah, you're exactly right. There's there's something beautiful in that simplicity that yeah. immediately, there's no detective work that you need to do as a listener. It is laid out to you on a silver platter, and you get to enjoy exactly what this person is 
how he or she feels about this scenario, whether well, it's... And, and, and you're not going to get burned by it. I mean, I, I, love, I love David Bowie, right? And Bewley Brothers is one of my favorite David Bowie songs. And I've been trying to figure out, because it's just a word salad. It's all sorts of nonsense. And there's different stories about, how, about what it all means. And one of them is, oh, he just threw a bunch of uh, words that sounded good together in there to drive Americans crazy because they like to look for meanings, but there Ugh. isn't one. Oh, God. And I'm like, oh, David Bowie. I know. Come on, <laughs> Bowie. You're better than that, Bowie. You're, you're better than that. I, I, you know, a lot of the song origin stories end up being apocryphal, but I... I that that one I I hope that's not true about David. That would be kind of heartbreaking cuz he's someone that yeah. you sort of hold in real high esteem for we all do for very specific reasons. So, oh god. Yes. Uh I'm looking at um the Wits website and and it says the most recent episode was episode number 73. Is that is that true? Wow. I guess so. Um yeah, we we for a long time we would make one radio show out of each stage show that we do and then lately we've we've found ourselves throwing away so much good material that we started making two radio shows out of each show so wow. when we have colin hanks and father john misty on there'll be a, a an a show and a b show or we're trying to come up with yeah. the right terminology because it doesn't mean that the b show is not as good <laughs> of course yeah so, the show so, is yeah the show is wonderful. I love the show. Oh, it, it's on, um, I listen to it on KPCC uh, out of Pasadena in, here in California, and I think it's on Saturdays at 8 or 9. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it, it, does it air different nights on different stations, all over, or is it mostly Saturday? Uh, no, it's all over the place. I mean, the, the way the public radio system works is pretty crazy because yeah. uh, any station, like if you're an NBC affiliate on TV, you run the NBC show when NBC tells you to. But every station of the hundreds and hundreds of stations all over the country makes independent programming decisions. I mean, for the most part, they're going to put on morning edition on weekday mornings and all things considered in the afternoon. But after that, everybody just does their own thing. And so we're on you know Wednesdays at 11 p.m. some places. We're on Saturday mornings at 10 some places. We're, yeah. we're just all over the place. But here in, in Minnesota uh, and in L.A. both, which are, are big cities for us, it's Saturday nights at 8. It's, uh, it's been it's, – I'm assuming it's – I wonder, like, where you – it's such an enormous show and has a huge presence and you get amazing guests. Do, did you think that it would get to where it's gotten? Yeah, I, I try not to think about, about any of this stuff too much because then you just, like, I found myself, um, I think in our third season, because we did it as, as sort of a local show uh, and specials uh, for a while until we really started ramping up to national production. And right around our, our third season, I don't think we'd even gone national yet. We had Fred Willard on the show. And I'm just like, if Whoa. I can get through this whole night without thinking, you're trying to act in a sketch with Fred Willard. <laughs> you imposter, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> then, then I'll be okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it started pretty humble as just a, an author interview series. And then we started adding in more music and more jokes and tossed in some sketches and uh, we had our second season we had Patton Oswalt on just through he had a book coming in we had some connections with him 
and after an evening of, of Patton just being Patton, yeah. it was sort of a, for like, oh my, something else. And, uh, and then we started selling out our shows and then it really started to ramp up. So yeah, I mean, uh, we have, uh, we have tremendous producers on our show and we spend a lot of time, uh, trying to find great people and trying to convince great guests to come on the show. But uh, something that really helps though, is that the people who've been on the show have had a really good time. And then when they tell their friends and then their friends get invited, then it's uh makes the path a little smoother. Where would you like to see the show go? Do you have other goals for it? Like expanding in some way, or is there a guest that you sort of dream of? Like, where would you, when you, you dream know, of- I just, I want to keep doing it. <laughs> like, I, yeah. Right. I, if I, if I can just keep doing it, I'll be fine. Um, right. and, uh, and so far that's, that's going okay. I mean, I, I guess I'd like to get it on even more stations, but even that model, uh, is, is changing so much with, uh, with audio. It's still really wonderful to be a radio show and that, that, uh, somebody, we still get people stumbling across our show while running errands on Saturday afternoon. That's right. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think, uh, I think if we could just, uh, add on, just grow in that sense a little bit more, get some more stations and, and, uh, make it a little easier when we approach somebody about the show, if they've already heard of it, then, uh, then that would be uh, a little bit smoother. But mostly I just, you know, I kind of want to keep goofing around with my friends and yeah. and doing a show that, that people seem to like. You've been a part of the NPR family for a long time now in different capacities. What do you think is the biggest problem for NPR right now, like the biggest thing that they need to tackle? Well, for, I mean, NPR as an, as an entity, I, I work in public radio. I work for APM, and then NPR is... is uh, a friendly uh, rival of ours. So like NPR puts out all things considered morning edition, uh, wait, wait, don't tell me. And then APM, we put out marketplace. We distribute a Prairie home companion. Uh, we produce and distribute my show. Um, and then there's, you know, PRI and a few other, a few others along the way. But um, you know, in, in terms of the whole public radio system, I, I think the, the big problem that is that is being addressed is uh, is for a long time we've just sounded like we've got a shoved up the wrong place and yeah. and and we've sounded patronizing. Um, there's there's a kind of a pedantic quality to the public radio that that I grew up listening to or that I listened to as an adult before I got into the field where it's like, you know, it's such good information. The people are obviously super smart, but, um, like they're constipated quality to it. And I think that's really begun to change. I I think there's a lot of great shows that are out there where they just, there are people talking like people. And, uh, and I mean, that's, to me, that's when I started to really figure it out. Cause when I started, on the air, I was doing newscasts and local traffic and weather, and and I was trying to, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll approach this like acting. How is an NPR announcer supposed to sound? So I'd say, here in Seattle, looks like traffic tie-ups on I-5. And I'm like, oh man, I hate me. And, <laughs> right. and so then, uh, one day I just 
I went on the air and I, and I had decided I'm just going to talk about what's going on as if I was fine. And I told him about the show that's coming up and here's what we're hearing about the weather and uh, here's what's going to be on tomorrow. Right. And, and that's when it really started to click in for me. And that's when I started becoming a lot better at my job uh, is just the idea of a person talking like a person. I think one of the reasons that your show is so good and so important is that it's, it's fighting that um, pedantic nature that NPR can be that there is this yeah. sort of heaviness to NPR, and it's changing. But I think one of the, your show is one of those shows that is making it more accessible and sort of like like taking the piss out of it. And even though you're not like writing sketches about NPR, but you're sort of like saying you, you bring this sort of lightness, and it's a really smart, funny show, and it doesn't take itself too seriously as some NPR people do, perhaps. <laughs> Well, I I think we're very comfortable getting stupid sometimes. We we can get we can get some jokes that are very clever and some stuff that's very very polished and then we can just especially in some of our uh improvised segments we can get dumb as hell and I think that's yeah. kind of uh, and from what I've heard of people who are with NPR when it was really taking off in like the seventies, it's a lot more like it was then when it was just some people kind of getting together and right. flying by the seat of their pants and, and figuring yeah. out what they wanted to do. Um, you know, like I, I've always gotten the occasional, uh, e- you know, terse email or, uh, <laughs> online com. This is not what I expect from public radio. <laughs> oh, good Lord. And I'm like, well, you know, then I don't, I don't know what to do for you. Yeah, exactly. I, public radio needs more silliness. I think it really helps it. It, it. it helps even out its balance, I feel like. And yeah, your well, shows- I, mean, I, I just think that if, if public radio can, can do what it does well, which is take the time to really explore an idea, whether that's a news story, an investigative piece, a comedy sketch, a piece of music. Um, I, I have friends who work in commercial radio, and when you do an hour-long talk show, you're on the air for 32 minutes because the rest of the time is all those ads and, and all those kind of standard blocks in the middle of the hour. So you don't get any momentum on a given thought before right. you have to go to something else. Right. And we can run a 20-minute segment. And uh, I think that's a that's a, a wonderful gift for, for anybody, whether it's yeah. This American Life or uh, Radio Lab or for us. I feel like Garrison Keillor would have just the worst breath ever. Is that, is that true? <laughs> you know, I've barely ever met him. Bullshit. I, I, no, I, um, I think I met him once when I was in Seattle because um, uh, to the, the station there. And then I met him um, once at the retirement party for our uh, founder and CEO, where Garrison talked at great length, and I was asked to wave briefly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but he doesn't produce his show. He, like his offices aren't in the same building as mine, and. Uh, we only do our shows at the Fitzgerald Theater on the dates that he's not using. Um, oh. So we've just, we never really intersect. I assume there would be more crossover, you two being two enormous you would, public radio stars you would think, in the same town. I, I, I'm pretty sure he's aware that we have a show, 
But aside from that, that's about <laughs> as much uh, contact as, as I really have. Who's your favorite public radio personality? M- mine is Krista Tippett. I think her voice uh, is just, I don't want to sl- <laughs> look her up and see a picture of her. Like I have a, an image of her in my brain and it's like Krista, early Stevie Krista Nicks. For a long, or, yeah. Krista for a long time worked just down the hall for me here. Um, and when I was hosting a, the technology show, I remember, remember passing Krista in the hallway one time and she's saying, hey, John, how's technology? I said, fine. <laughs> Krista, how's spirituality? Yeah. Pretty good. Okay. <laughs> and then we just, and I'm like, that is a public radio moment. Yes. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. Um, I'm a like. Who's I'm your a first huge, pick? Huge, huge in the, fan in, in the public radio I'm a huge draft. Fan of. Uh, I'm sorry. Who's your first pick in the in the public radio draft? Uh, Lynn Rosetto Casper, uh, who's the host wow. of the Splendid Table. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. And I, I am not a cook. Uh, I don't enjoy cooking. I'm not good at cooking. I have no interest in cooking. But uh, where Lynn is so passionate about food and what food can mean to people that just getting her talking about it. And she's one of these people, if you run into her at the grocery store, she sounds exactly like she does at on the radio. Funny. And uh, to me, it's just like I love an hour spent listening to Lynn talking about food is just an hour well spent. She's full of joy. You can see her. You can, you can, in your mind's eye, you can see her smiling at the microphone. Like she yeah, yeah. has so much joy no, in what it, she does. And it's absolutely true. Wherever you run into Lynn, it's, that's exactly who she is. And, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that I get to work with her sometimes too. How much do you think This American Life has to do with... Um, bringing new listeners to public radio when, when it first started, like, I feel like that show crossed so many boundaries and it's, um, yeah, Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I remember when it, when it first came on the air and I mean, Ira uh, Glass was a pretty big public radio rock star before he started that show. Just as a reporter, he was, he was very, um, very well regarded, but yeah, that's the first show that, that people around my age would, talk about socially like oh my god did you hear that show you have to hear that show yeah and at the time i mean it meant making sure you were near your radio at the given time so you could listen to it um and so yeah i I think it it did bring in a lot of people and i think uh, it it got a lot of um it got a lot of producers and reporters and writers thinking about the possibilities of radio and thinking about it as a Mm. as a fresh medium because it's when you think about the messy that radio affords, like I, the biggest struggle in my thousand people on stage. So you kind of want to entertain like you do in a theater, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, the vast, vast majority of my audience is listening to me like in their kitchen or in their car. Yep. And, and I have to be talking to them, I can't be shouting at them in their kitchen. Nobody likes that. And, and so I, I have to, to bring myself to that, that level where I can be good company on a drive or while you make dinner. Who would win in a fight, Scott, Simon, or Steve Inskeep? Hmm. I th- you know, I think I'd give it to Steve because... Scott is strong and rangy. He's got the veteran savvy. 
Um, Steve, I think, might be a little quicker. I think he might be a little cagier. Uh, I don't know that either of them would fight dirty, but I think, I think like, if, if Steve's interview style is any indication, like, Steve can just be bringing you along very friendly way in an interview and then just sort of get that cutting question in that just is devastating. So, so yeah, I think, uh, I think Steve maybe slices Scott's hamstrings and the fight's over. John Moe has been my guest today. He's the host of Wits, which is on American public media that they produce the show. It's on your local public radio station. You can go to the website and find out um, where you can listen. It's uh, witsradio.org. He's an author and an NPR star and a really funny guy and kind to come on this podcast. Uh, John, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Keep up the great work. Building a website can be tough, and even if you do know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well is a time-consuming affair, and who has time to do that? So whether it's a business site or a portfolio, restaurants, a blog, whatever else, in this day and age, you probably need one anyway. So lucky for us, Squarespace exists on Earth, and he makes it very easy. I said he. Maybe it's a she. I think Squarespace is probably both sexes. Either way... Regardless of its gender, Squarespace makes it very easy for you to build beautiful websites. Uh, You can't beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. You'll have 24-7 online support, beautiful website for only $8 a month, and each website you build also comes with a free online store if you need it, Um, and their cover page feature also allows you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in just minutes. You can even uh, get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. So you can start a trial with no credit card at all and start building a website immediately and get a feel for it. So when you decide to do this, go to Squarespace and make sure to use the offer code NATE and you get 10% off your first purchase and you show your support for reading aloud, which is great. And I thank you for that. So thanks, Squarespace. And thank you, listener, for building a website. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Welcome back. It's reading aloud. We are uh, in Act Three, the final act, and uh, John Mo is great. Um, I've n- it's one of those interesting things where um, we have a friendship, but we've never met in person. But he's a really funny, charming guy, and I've always been a fan of his show. And we have some mutual friends in common, and, and we both like sports. I've been on his sports podcast, which is worth listening to. It's really funny, um, and he just has a really great kind of point of view on on the world and I hope his show is on forever because it's it is the funniest show on 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 national public radio um in my opinion um he just has a really good point of view um so thank you John thanks for coming on the show um the the internet connection with that interview was driving me fucking up a wall but um what are you going to do he's in Minnesota and I'm in California um my final piece Tim Workus wrote this. Um, he has a book called City of Brick and Shadow, which has amazing reviews on Goodreads. And I have it myself. I've just started it. And it's really good. He's a really clever writer. He's very smart. Um, and uh, I found this piece. This is a short that he wrote that was in the Best American Non-Required Reading Collection, which I love that Dave Eggers puts out every year. This is from 2013. Uh, where's this from? 2013. This is from 2013. 
And, excuse me, and it's called An Intrusion. And it's one of those short stories uh, where it's, it's stuck with me. It's been in the back of my head ever since I, I read it I, over a year ago. And it's really simple and powerful. And when I was trying to come up with um, stories to read on the show for you, this one popped out of my head. And I'm surprised that I've been this patient, that I've sat on this one for nine episodes. But I'm really excited. Um, and because I love this piece so much, I decided to read it myself. I feel like every 10 episodes, I'll read something. I like to have friends come in and, and make new friends to, to read content for you. But uh, every so often, I get really jazzed, and I want to read it myself. So this is one of those stories. It's called An Intrusion. Tim Workus wrote it, and here it is. Here's me using a, a different voice. This is what Mike Mitchell told me when I ran into him about a month ago. He said they found the first envelope after a weekend away visiting Julie's dying grandfather. It was pinned up on the wall above their TV, so when they sat down to watch the news that evening after unpacking and grabbing a bite to eat, they couldn't miss it. They'd been living there about four months by that point, their first real house, Bought with money from their first real jobs out of college, Mike working as a project manager for a company that developed accounting software, and Julie writing copy for a small advertising firm. Unfortunately, the advertising firm had folded unexpectedly a month after Julie had started there, and she was without a job. She and Mike were doing okay, though, making their house payments with enough money left over for groceries and other essentials. Things were just a little tight. Anyway, they got home from visiting Julie's grandfather, who had always been more like a father to her and was currently very, very ill, to find an envelope pinned above their TV. Mike noticed it first and asked Julie why she had pinned an envelope to their wall. Julie said she hadn't. Mike asked who else would have done it. They were the only ones with keys to the house. They didn't even have a spare key hidden outside yet. It was just one of those things they kept meaning to do. Julie pulled the envelope down from the wall. Inside, she found a dozen or so photographs. Mike looked over her shoulder as she flipped through them. The pictures showed a young couple engaged in a series of mundane domestic pursuits, standing together at a sink washing dishes, reading on a couch, playing cards at a dining room table, changing a light bulb in a floor lamp. The problem was that the couple, who were not Mike and Julie, were doing all these things inside Mike and Julie's house. Mike grabbed the pictures from Julie and flipped through them again. None of the photographs revealed the face of either the man or the woman. In each picture, their backs were to the camera, or their heads were turned, or some object obscured their faces. Mike called the police. They showed up quickly and were not very helpful. The police asked if anything was missing from the house. Nothing was missing as far as Mike and Julie could tell. The police then asked if the pictures could have been taken before they moved in. Julie pointed out that the couch the couple was shown sitting on was Mike and Julie's couch, that the framed prints on the wall were Mike and Julie's framed prints, that the dishes in the couple's hands were Mike and Julie's dishes. The police asked who else had keys to the house. Mike said that nobody did. 
The police asked if the couple in the pictures resembled any friends or acquaintances of theirs, or if they knew anybody who was especially fond of pranks. Mike said no. The police said that they were sorry, but there wasn't much they could do. They told Mike and Julie to change the locks in their house and let them know if this happened again. So Mike and Julie changed the locks in their doors and tried not to think about the strangers who had been inside their house. At work, Mike's team got a big new project from a prominent local gym that was unhappy with its current accounting software. At home, Julie searched for a new job, calling old acquaintances for leads, redesigning her resume for the hundredth time, writing cover letters, scanning the classified section of the newspaper, and waiting for prospective employers to get back to her. I stopped Mike at this point and asked him, how could they just go about their lives like that? Didn't their house feel... Too weird to them? How could they sleep there? Mike shrugged. He said the pictures were upsetting, but what else could they do? He and Julie were a little jumpy for a week or two, but then they pretty much stopped thinking about it. It's surprising what you can get used to. He went on with his story. A few months later, they found some more pictures. Just three of them this time, in an envelope again, sitting on their dining room table. Julie had an interview that morning for a receptionist position at a dentist's office, not ideal, but better than nothing, and found the envelope when she sat down to eat breakfast. The pictures showed the same faceless couple as before, the man tall and thin with pale, freckled skin, the woman shorter, nearly as thin as the man with faded blonde hair that reached halfway down her back. While the previous set of pictures depicted scenes that, had they not been taken place in Mike and Julie's house, might be mistaken for innocent snapshots of the happy domestic life of a young married couple, the second set of photos had an air of menace about it. In a picture taken in the living room, the couple seemed at first glance to be embracing. On closer inspection, however, something about the twisted posture of the woman and the tense, veiny grip of the man's arm suggested, respectively, resistance and restraint. The second photograph, taken from just behind the man, showed the woman leaning over almost into the kitchen sink, her hair pulled back from her face, which was turned away from the camera. The man watched from the doorway, hands on his hips, in the third picture, the husband lay face down in Mike and Julie's unmade bed, the sheets tangled and askew, while the woman knelt on the floor a few feet away, her face held in her hands. The police were even less helpful this second time. They suggested that Mike and Julie install alarms in their house or move. They said the relatively small magnitude of the crime didn't merit the kind of constant police surveillance it would require to find the perpetrators. As they were leaving, one of the officers pulled Mike aside. The officer said that if this was a prank, it had gone far enough and that Mike should stop trying to frighten his wife. Mike said he had nothing to do with any of it. The officer said that was fine, but if he did, it needed to stop. At this point in his telling, Mike paused. So, that was the end of it, I asked? No, said Mike. No. 
It was just one picture the third time. In an envelope pinned to the sleeve of Mike's coat when he took it down from the rack in the corner to run to the store to pick up a head of lettuce for a salad that Julie was making. This was just a few weeks after the second set of pictures had turned up. Mike unpinned the envelope from the sleeve of his coat and handed the photo to Julie in the kitchen. She set down the knife with the bits of sliced radish clinging to it and held the picture with both hands. In this photo, the man and the woman were posed in precisely the same positions that Julie and Mike had been in only moments before. The woman with the faded blonde hair stood at the kitchen counter chopping radishes while the wiry, pale-skinned man rummaged through the fridge for a head of lettuce that wasn't there. Mike told me they moved out after that. Sold the house at a big loss and were currently renting a tiny apartment across town. Mike and I used to be pretty close, but I wasn't sure what to say to him. How to react to all that, so I wished him good luck and said we should get together for dinner sometime. Like I said, this was about a month ago when he told me all this. I've since heard that Mike and Julie are splitting up. Apparently, she's already moved back in with her parents on the other side of the country and is filing for a divorce. Mike is living by himself in their little apartment and not talking to anybody. Not that I blame him. There are rumors floating around that Mike sent Julie to the hospital a couple of weeks ago with a broken nose and three cracked ribs. That this wasn't the first time that maybe this kind of thing went on during their entire marriage. I've tried calling him several times. I've even stopped by his apartment once or twice, but he's never home. And he doesn't return my calls. And now, here I am using this voice. Hi, it's Nate Cordry. I host Reading Loud, and you've been listening to episode 10 uh, most recently, you listened to Tim Workus's story, An Intrusion, which was in the uh, best uh, non-required reading collection from 2013. Uh, I love that story. It's so great. Um, maybe I should have kept it until Halloween, but eh, well, it's, it's, it's February. Let's read it now in the dead of winter. Uh, my thoughts and prayers go out to everyone in New England. Good Lord, you poor bastards. Jesus, I don't. I don't miss that. Sam, are you from the uh, are you from the East Coast? No, uh, Wisconsin. Oh, but so you are familiar with the cold white snow. Yeah. Uh, this is the end of our show. We had Dan Kennedy, uh, Steve Agee read Dan Kennedy. We had John Moe in the middle. And then we had myself reading Tim Workus. And Sam has been with me. Sam's uh, one of the engineers extraordinaire here. And it's been 10 episodes. So I want to say, I want to say thank you, Sam. Well, that's very nice of you. Yeah, you put a lot of time and effort in this show. I appreciate show. that. Yeah, as does Cody, but... I hate books. They're for nerds. What do you and mean? this show, it drains me. All books? All, <laughs> every single book. Is there any book that you've read that you've been like, ah, this is one's okay? I saw a book once with a picture of a sword on it. Oh, yeah, that book's called Swords. Yeah. Right, you I'll know swords? The, yeah, I've read that. Sweet, man. Maybe uh, for the 20th episode, I'll get you a copy of Swords. I think serious? it's actually just called Sword. Oh, okay. It's not plural. Just one picture of a sword. Yeah. You've it's been the listening. same picture on every page. 
It's a book about sword. <laughs> John Sword. Uh, reading aloud has been coming into your ears. It's episode 10. Thanks so much for listening. Um, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, go back to the beginning. We have really great um, interviews, lots of funny readings, lots of heavier readings. We have a, a strange, eclectic mix in this show, and i um, really thankful to Cody and Sam for working really hard and, and making it all come together. So hopefully we'll do another 10 episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with a uh, a book club. Oh, yeah. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.